All right, good morning, Story Family. How are we doing over here? We're good? Y'all okay? Come on now. We good? Okay. All right. I want to say a word of welcome to not only those of you that are gathered here in the museum district, but also everybody joining us online, and those of you who have gathered at our Timber Grove campus in the Heights. Can we just say, what's up, Timber Grove? All right. We love you guys over at 8200 Washington Avenue, and I'm praying for y'all all the time. We're one church in two locations right now, and really many locations, if you count, where everybody's joining us from uh, the miracle known as the, uh, the internet, right? So joining us online in all kinds of places through YouTube and Facebook and our website, thestory.church. If we don't know each other yet, my name's Eric, and I'm uh, the lead pastor here at The Story Church. And I'm a little bit more amped up than I have been in a few weeks because, you know, I didn't get into ministry to do, you know, massive fundraising projects. Like, that's just not my favorite thing to do. Now, it has been a blessing. I've enjoyed it. I'm thankful to all of you that have um, uh, contributed and committed to the capital campaign to purchase the story's new home at Bethany Christian Church, 3223 Westheimer Road. I'm getting back into it again. I feel it. I feel it coming. Uh, We are finally to the point now where we can kind of close the book on the first phase of that campaign. It's an ongoing deal, but we've got some time. We can press pause and and have a little bit of uh, back to business kind of season now where we get back to doing what we love to do at the Story Church. And so today's message is really more on mission for us. It's, uh, It's the beginning of a new series called I'm Out, and uh, I'm Out is going to be a three-week exploration of all the most common reasons why people, especially young adults, are walking away from the church, walking away from Christianity um, and from their faith in many ways. And so uh, we're going to get into today's reason that we're going to explore in just a moment, but I feel like I just want to remind everybody and state the case, right? So why are we talking about this? And And you've heard it over and over again throughout the years recently that the church is on the way out, right? That Christianity or really organized religion on the whole is on the decline in Western civilization, especially in America. Like, and it's true. Like there's, it's almost like lost on us now because we hear it so often. It's like Chicken Little saying the sky is falling. We don't pay attention because we've heard it for 30 years and churches are still here. You know, we're still here on Sunday mornings, but In some ways, we're a little bit shielded from how bad it's gotten across the country because it's not as bad in Houston, Texas. We can own that. Like Houston, Texas, churches do a little bit better uh, in Houston, Texas than in most major cities throughout the country. Um, But the decline in worship involvement, church attendance has been steep, especially given the acceleration of of COVID uh, and uh, how that has uh, accelerated everything in the culture, including church decline. So um, you know, what we're seeing is this mass exodus uh, over the years, not so much at churches like The Story, but churches like The Story are not replicating fast enough to backfill the churches that are really seeing this steep decline. Most churches were struggling before COVID, and since COVID, they've come back at about 30 to 40% of what they were before COVID. So the, um, we're at like 80% of what we were before COVID. It affected just about every church, but some more than others. It's a pretty desperate situation in the church landscape across the country. And the point in saying all this is that if these trends continue, churches might be hard to come by in generations to come, especially in in other parts of the country, the coastal regions and some parts of the upper Midwest. It's going to be harder and harder for our children and grandchildren to find churches in America that are vibrant and gathering. That's going to be 
Obviously, that's going to bring some changes to the culture that uh, might not all be good, right? Or might not be good at all. So um, the statistics right now are that more than 5,000 churches a year are closing up forever in America every year. That's more than 15 churches a day in America that are closing. And uh, there's no indication that that trend will slow down anytime soon. So what will that yield? What will that bring to us as a culture? Many of those church properties are being bought up and converted into secular use properties like, um, for example, bars and restaurants like this one. Would you go and eat here? Be honest. Kind of cool looking, right? <laughs> kind of a cool looking spot. You probably wouldn't go to church there, but many of you are like, I'd go have a drink there. Okay, well... I don't know if you want to say that in church, but, uh, <laughs> but this is the reality of the world we're living in now. If not, if not bars, then they're being converted into things like hotels. Would you sleep in this room where people used to pray? Like <laughs> They're being converted into you know, um, profitable hotels and uh, VRBOs and things like that. This one's probably the coolest looking one. Some churches are being transformed into swimming pools. This is a before and after. Um, which is, I mean, at least you could pretend like you're being baptized, I guess, if you're swimming at a church swimming pool, but uh, still seems somewhat sacrilegious, but not as sacrilegious as churches being turned into frat houses where frat boys are partying it up in uh, people's uh, former houses of worship. So this is increasingly the reality across America, and we shouldn't be afraid of these facts. We shouldn't run from these facts. We shouldn't you know, cower in fear or shame because of these facts. We should just be honest about the state of the world and where this would lead, but for some powerful act of God uh, to revive the church, okay? Now, what's, what's leading people to leave, uh, especially young people? That, that's a complicated question, right? Like, I, I could answer that question in a number. Some people are just bored with church. Some of you are bored with the church right now, in this very moment. I see it in your eyes, but you're hanging in there. Some people are bored with church. Some people feel like church is irrelevant to their daily lives. But other people have sort of deeper issues with the church that, um, that they're working through. And one of the most common uh, reasons people will give for walking away from the church or from the Christian faith is that they are in a process of deconstructing. I'm deconstructing is something that I hear more and more. I have rarely, if ever, heard a person over the age of 40 say they're deconstructing, but it seems like every other person under the age of 40 that I know has said to me they're deconstructing. That's sort of how prevalent this has become in a generational kind of fashion. Like it is, uh, it is very widespread, very prevalent among um, gen, uh, well, millennials and Gen Z and whatever they're calling the generation after Gen Z, what are they? Alphas or something? I can't remember. Something like that. I don't see a lot of alphas in that generation. But anyway, um, so it's, uh, it is what it is. Okay, I don't make up the names. Okay, so the, uh, the, the concept of deconstructing can mean anything from like tinkering around the edges, like I have an issue here or there. But more often than that, it means something deeper, like I am tearing it all down. I'm burning down the house of the faith I grew up with. I'm proverbially speaking, right? I'm like, I'm taking it all apart. I'm examining every assumption that's been embedded into me by my forebears, my, my parents, my preachers, my Sunday school teachers, all of it. I'm just taking it apart and seeing what works for me. 
And this is sort of borne out in um, a progressive Christian author who was very famous. She was an influencer. She passed away tragically. But a progressive Christian author named uh, Rachel Held Evans who described her deconstruction process like this. She said, uh, for me, deconstruction, deconstructing meant taking a massive inventory of my faith, tearing every doctrine from the cupboard, and turning each one over in my hand. There's nothing wrong with, with that. Objectively speaking, this is a perfectly normal um, process that a young adult's going to go through. That's part of what young adulthood is. So I'm not throwing her or anyone who's gone uh, through a process or is going through a process like that right now. Because wanting to examine the underpinnings of your worldview is perfectly normal. I would say God gave you that brain, so you should use it. But we should be very careful, very careful about our methodology when it comes to what, what the kids today are calling deconstruction. I remember the first time I heard the phrase, I'm deconstructing, was when I was in seminary. Uh, you know, after being raised in the Bible Belt, like as like red meat America as it could have been, Red Lake, Texas is where I grew up, town of 250 people. Everybody went to church, everybody believed the same things. Nobody had any divergent beliefs in Red Lake, Texas. And, or maybe like one or two people, but they were like the outcasts. It was like, you know, we would have done like the Salem witch trials on them in a bygone era, I think. But like, luckily we grew out of that, but it was still very assumed that everybody was on the same page. And, and I grew up with all that. I went to college and sort of this rebellious streak grew in me. And I think, you know, even that's God given in a way that, that desire to question everything that grew in me and kind of took over over time. And, and in my 20s, from age 20 to 33, I renounced the faith of my childhood. I walked away from that Bible Belt religion and I made fun of it. I made fun of people who believed those things. And I ended up saying and thinking and writing and even preaching as an ordained United Methodist pastor things that I now am ashamed of saying and writing and preaching and speaking back then, right? Like I was speaking out of such a place of anger. Somehow I felt oppressed by my limited Bible Belt upbringing where I was told exactly what to believe. I was, I was angry. I wanted to break out of that mold. And so I spoke out of that anger. And it, it obviously was, was not pretty. It wasn't a productive part of my life. But when I was 22 or 23, I was studying at a very progressive Methodist seminary in Kansas City. And I, I first heard that day, I remember clearly, I first heard someone say the phrase, I'm, just, I'm deconstructing in reference to their own sort of faith uh, being lost. Right? And in that moment when that woman said, I'm deconstructing my faith, I felt seen in a way that I can't say that I had in the past. I felt validated and I felt good about it. I was deconstructing too. In retrospect, y'all, I wasn't actually deconstructing my faith. I was losing it. And I was deconverting, actually, and that's really part of my concern with the phrase, I'm deconstructing. I'd say two out of three people that I hear use that phrase are actually deconverting from Christianity, and there is rarely such a thing as a deconstructing Christian. And I, I want to talk a little bit about why that is, but first I just want to say, if you can relate to my story at all, I came full circle when I was 34, back to Jesus, full faith on fire to, to let the whole world know about the love of God in Jesus Christ. It's my, my whole life now since I came back to Christ at 34. If you can relate to that season of struggle in my life, or if you relate to what Rachel Held Evans wrote in her book, that, I, that quote that I shared earlier, I want you to feel seen today too, genuinely. I want you to 
to have your experience validated today as much as humanly possible without compromising any of the truth we believe as Christians. I want you to know that I understand, and many people here understand the struggle of doubt and, and, and questioning God and reconsidering some of the preconceptions and, and assumptions you've been uh, you know, imposed upon you by others. Like, I understand that struggle. And that struggle in and of itself is not a disqualifier for God. Clearly, it's not. Not because I'm saying it. I know it's not a deal breaker for God because the Bible's full of people that struggle with seasons of doubt and uncertainty. I mean, I mean, think about Thomas. Thomas is always the one we throw under the bus. We talk about doubting. Doubting Thomas, right? Thomas lived a whole life, a whole long life on earth, probably being mostly faithful. Doubted once, and now it's his brand. Like everybody knows Thomas for doubting. Poor Thomas. We're going to owe him an, an apology when we get to heaven. It's like, he's like, can I have another adjective? You know, it's like, besides doubting. But he did doubt at a very key moment in his life. And he was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And he was unsure that Jesus was who he said he was and that he had done what he said he was going to do. He was unsure that Jesus rose from the dead. But he took his doubt straight to Jesus. Took his question straight to the source. We think about Sarah from the Old Testament. Abraham's wife, Sarah. Right? The angels came and visited Sarah and gave her this, this audacious plan of God that God was going to gift her with a, an unlikely child in her older years, and she didn't believe it at first. At first, her first inclination was to doubt. She doubted so deep in her bones that she laughed in the angel's presence. She laughed, and she came around, but she laughed, and then she had a conversation with God through those angels, and she came around. Or even Mary, we're going to be talking about Mary again. It's almost Christmas. That's the only time we talk about Mary for some reason. Third most important person in the Bible probably. She gets like a week a year at the church because we're Protestants and trying not to be Catholics at all costs. And uh, Mary, Mary gets this announcement from the angel. You're going to bear the, the son of God, the Messiah, the savior of the world. And her first inclination was just for a shadow of a moment to doubt, to question. How can this possibly be? How could this be? For I'm a virgin, she said. So Mary even doubted for a second. Then she came around, but she took her question straight to God. Then one day, if we are all blessed with the gift of going to heaven, we're going to find Thomas is there and Sarah's there and Mary's there and many others who have doubted and, you know, lived through seasons of despair and questioning. And they're there because they took their doubts and questions straight to God and not just to themselves in solitude. And God knows they didn't take it to the internet or to Google looking for answers to questions only God can provide. We have a lot of options before us when we doubt, when we struggle, when we question. Where will we take our questions and doubts when they present themselves? There's this great story from the Bible, from the Gospel of Mark, where this father who is desperate for his son's well-being, his son is like possessed by some kind of an evil force, like a, a, a demon possession situation. And these situations happen, and this voice and this son of his head was trying to get him to destroy himself. And it was, it was breaking the father's heart and keeping him up at night. And this father, desperate for healing, brought his son to Jesus. And this is what happened. Check out what happened in this exchange. Mark chapter 9, verses 21 to 24. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it's often thrown him into the fire or into the water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And I love Jesus here. Jesus is like, if you can do anything, if. So like, Jesus is being a little snarky here, but he's Jesus, so he has a right to be. He says, if you can, 
Everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Tremendous, tremendous encapsulation of so many of our experiences with God. We stand in that space. We occupy that gap between belief and unbelief. One foot here, one foot there. At the same time, Lord, I believe, but I don't. Lord, I believe, but help me when I don't. I believe, help my unbelief. We know what it's like to be that father. And if that's the space you're occupying today, I just want you to know that's okay. The question isn't whether you're all in belief-wise or not. The question is when you don't believe, when you can't believe, what do you do? Where do you go? We sang a song earlier, you're never going to let me down. You're never going to let me down. Some of you were sitting in here or standing in here thinking to yourself, well, you let me down. How can I sing this song? How can these Christians sing this song when it feels like God lets us down all the time? If that's where your head's at today, I want you to know that doesn't make you anything less than any of the rest of us. It doesn't disqualify or, or it doesn't, it's not a deal breaker for God in any uh, stretch of the imagination. Now, God knows what it's like to occupy that space. God knows you even when you're there. And as I've always said at the story, honestly wrestling with doubts, taking your doubts straight to God can be a source of growth. It can bring you closer to God when you deal with those doubts in that way. All right? That's why whenever I hear people say they're deconstructing, it doesn't necessarily mean something ungodly is happening. It doesn't necessarily mean that. I will confess that some red flags are raised when someone says to me, I'm deconstructing because of how drastic that process usually is and how three times out of four, probably, that person who says they're deconstructing, they end up leaving the church, leaving the faith because that's how far deconstructing takes them, all right? And so I don't think there's inherently something sinful about deconstructing. I just think we should be very mindful of the fact that when we use a word like deconstructing, we are aligning ourselves with a movement in the world that is counter to the gospel, counter to God's truth, and that does not have your best intentions in mind. Many people who say they're deconstructing what they thought they were doing was being liberated from some old construct that oppressed them. And they're free now, but what they actually did was trade a benevolent master for a malevolent one. And this is what I mean. The phrase deconstructing is not uh, neutral. And words matter. When we use a word like this, it has implications. The word deconstruction as a philosoph uh, philosophical term can be traced back to really the 20th century is the first time it was used in philosophy in the mid-20th century, but the roots of it go back to the onset of postmodernism, um, when European thinkers, uh, fueled by Marxist philosophy, frankly, began to seek the downfall of Western civilization by attacking and picking apart and destroying its pillars and assumptions one by one. Okay, so the first man to use the word deconstruction from a philosophical point of view was uh, Jacques Derrida. You may not have ever heard the word, the name uh, Jacques Derrida before, but your life has been in some ways irrevocably changed by him and his philosophy. You've been touched by his work, whether you know his name or not. Derrida and his postmodern predecessors uh, believe that reality is mythological 
reality is constructed. In fact, all truth is a social construct. That phrase, whatever you want to say, is a social construct. We've heard it about, you know, gender, for example, is a social construct. Like that terminology comes from the same school of thought. It comes from uh, critical theory that's rooted in, in Marxist thought. It just is. That's the only source of the word deconstruction as a, a philosophy for life. So this worldview would say there's no objectivity at all. There's no absolute truth. There are no absolute truth claims. In fact, anyone who makes absolute truth claims to you should be immediately distrusted and suspect in your mind. You should always have a hermeneutic of suspicion about people who say, well, this is the truth. For you and me and everybody, this is the truth, or at least the truth is out there. It exists. You can find it. Anyone who makes those claims is trying to control you. That's the claim of postmodern thinkers like Derrida. And so you should automatically be suspicious of them and remember there's no such thing as an absolute truth claim. And the irony was lost on the postmodernists that the very foundation on which they built their worldview was unsustainable because in saying that there's no such thing as an absolute truth claim, they were making a what? Absolute truth claim. And, and by saying all absolute truth claims are trash, it was a self-refuting argument because so was theirs. I mean, I can't believe really smart people ever fell for this idea. There's no absolute truth in the world except for this one that I'm giving you right now. And by the way, whenever someone tells you they have an absolute truth for you, don't believe them except for me. Believe me. It's just like silly. But entire movements have been built on this philosophy. In fact, so much of what higher education has become in America today is built on this philosophy where we are taking everything apart dismantling every institution, and we are examining it, like Rachel Haddad said, in my own hands. So I become the high priest of my own world. I become the filter through which my reality is determined. And I determine my reality based on what? I don't know. My experiences, my perceptions, my truth. And if you've ever heard the phrase, my truth versus the truth, this uh, same worldview gave rise to that idea, right? So if you're over the age of 40 and you feel like, man, I, I don't know when it happened, but the world is upside down. Like if you're over the age of 40, uh, like me, and you feel like everything's just different and backward now, upside down now, because words don't mean what they used to, and marriage doesn't mean what it used to, and family doesn't mean what it used to, and and gender doesn't mean what it used to, and feelings matter more than they used to, and facts matter a lot less than they used to. Like, this is all a result of this philosophy infecting the culture through higher education. So, why am I saying all this? Uh, <laughs> you may be thinking, it's because words do matter. And by using a word like I'm deconstructing, you are aligning yourself in that worldview, even if you didn't mean to or know that you were. And then I fear many are opened up to influences in that world that, again, do not have their best interests in mind and will lead them further astray. So does it matter if you say you're deconstructing when you're really doing something less nefarious? Maybe, maybe not. I just would prefer for Christians who are earnestly seeking and calling it deconstructing to, to just use a different word like discerning. What most 
What most well-intentioned Christians are really doing when they're taking things apart and analyzing what they really believe, they're discerning. And discernment is a biblical practice. It's a spiritual gift. Like the Bible says we should discern. The Bible says we should carefully discern and examine every teaching. You should go home from church every day that you hear a sermon every Sunday and discern whether what I said was true or not. Maybe you do that. But I would ask you another question. What is the filter? Are you the filter or is something else outside of you, something objectively true, the filter, all right? So there's a great passage that speaks to this uh, phenomenon of building and, uh, and the foundation on which we build and how we build. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10 says, by the grace God has given me, this is Paul writing, Paul said, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. He's talking about building the church in Corinth. He's talking to the Corinthians. So I, I, with the help of God, built this church on the foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is now building on it. So he had left, and he's writing from a distance. You're building on it now, but each one of you should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that's already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, or whatever, right? Lots of different materials. Their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's Burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So there is a deconstruction coming, but it is God who will deconstruct whatever it is we've spent our lives building. And the beauty of the gospel, and the gospel stands apart in this regard, the beauty of the gospel is that even if you have built foolishly and what you have built does not stand the test of time you still, by the grace of God, can be received into heaven. You see what it says at the end? The builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved as one escaping through the fire. And this is the only gracious master that there is. Every other master you seek to put in God's place will say, if you fail to build wisely, you will suffer the consequences. You don't want to be your own God. You don't want to put yourself in that position or anyone else or anything else that's lower than God. I came across a video this week of one of my favorite recording artists. He's a Christian recording artist who almost fell away from the faith. I could feel it in his music um, a few years ago when he was really struggling to figure out what he believed and why. His name is Lecrae. He's a, a Christian rapper. And uh, I'm actually a, a real fan of his work and his uh, lyrics, are, they speak to my, to my soul. But in the video I'm about to show you, he says that he went through a season of deconstructing. And when I hear him talk, it's actually, it sounds a lot more like discerning. I wish he'd use the word discerning. It's just in his generation, deconstructing is the word everybody's using. But just listen closely to what he said about his process of discernment as far as the truth of God is concerned. This is a three-minute clip. Let's listen to Lecrae. I know because I did it too. That's right, I deconstructed. I just did not understand that even though the followers of Christ were doing all this crazy stuff that I, I couldn't wrap my brain around. It didn't mean that he endorsed it. And so I didn't have to throw the whole baby out with the bathwater, but we're so inundated with everything looking like the way it looks, especially in America. It's like, 
Well, of course, you know, uh, don't forsake the fellowship of the assembly. That verse really does not have anything to do with going to a building with lights and cameras and songs. If you wanna do that, that's great. But what that verse is really about is not forsaking the fellowship. It's like not walking away from the faith, the group of people who held you down, growing with believers. Like, look at the context of the verse. And so in America, oftentimes, where we fellowship with believers is in this institution that is on Sundays in a building. Sometimes there's coffee and there's childcare. That's just kind of the way we've set it up. But that's not like, the, that's a description, not a prescription of what church is. Church is people, it's the body, right? You got elders, you got deacons, you got leaders, and you got people who come together to grow. And when you're deconstructing, oftentimes for me, it was me saying, I don't like the infrastructures that these people have built that care more about money, that care less about people or marginalized people or poor people. And so I don't want anything to do with it. And you start looking like, well, where does it exist where it's better? And oftentimes you just don't see it because you, you, you don't have access to it. You haven't been exposed to it. But I've been very fortunate to travel the world and realize that there are broken people everywhere, but there are also institutions and infrastructures that do not look like what we have created here in America. It's not to say that they're better. It's just to say that they have different issues and different struggles. And I began to realize that the struggles that we have are not necessary in other places, right? And so I was able to see the difference between the Christ of the scriptures and the Christ that we have kind of propped up as like a politicized, commercialized version. And, um, and I said, oh, I don't want the politicized, commercialized stuff, but I do want Christ and I do want his church and I do want the fellowship and the the, all of those particular things. So my heart goes out to everybody who's deconstructing because they're struggling through some hurt probably or some inconsistencies. But I would just, man, encourage you, man, God is real, God is here. I deconstructed only to reconstruct. Sometimes you gotta tear down a moldy house and rebuild, but build on the foundation that is Christ. All right, uh, I've watched that like seven or eight times now. And he's such a poet with words. Every time I hear it, I, there's another little thing that I hear. And if you weren't really dialed in, you probably missed the heart of what he was saying. You probably caught the end there when he said, build on the foundation that is Christ. That's obviously the key when we are discerning what's truer and what's not. Build on, but, but I've seen even that go wrong if we don't have the right filter for truth. For example, there's another Christian artist who I used to really look up to. We used to sing his songs like every week at the story. Remember that song like five or six years ago we would sing called, You Make Beautiful Things. You remember that? Like every week we sing that because that was our jam. You may have noticed there's no churches singing that song anymore. And it's probably, it might be in part because we played it out. Like we just overdid it, but it's also probably because the guy that wrote that song and many others, Michael Gunger, very publicly came out as a sort of post-Christian, not Christian, something else, like a new age kind of person. But he still said he claimed Christ. So he still claimed to build on the foundation that is Christ. And look, like the tweet I've shared before, it's just so on the nose. I had to share it again, where Michael Gunger said, Jesus was Christ. Buddha was Christ, Muhammad was Christ, Christ is the word for the universe, seeing itself. What? Uh, you are Christ, we are the body of Christ. Where does that come from? 
I think it comes from Michael Gunger's own sort of chemically induced, you know, like fog or something. I don't know. Because there's nowhere in ancient scriptures, there's nowhere outside of him and maybe a few others that think like he does where Christ is defined this way. But how easy it is and convenient it is to take Christ, uh, something so pure and clear and, and muddy the waters by calling just anything that we like Christ. Christ is the universe seeing itself. No, no, Christ is clearly defined by the only ancient source we have that defines him, the scriptures, as the Son of God, risen from the dead, our Savior, and the Savior of all who will have him. Jesus Christ is the only ancient, true, historic definition of Christ. And so sometimes we can throw around the right words but get it all wrong And if you were listening really closely to Lecrae, you heard the distinction between his approach and Gunger's. Just listen 13 seconds. Listen to this 13-second clip for the key. And so I was able to see the difference between the Christ of the Scriptures and the Christ that we have kind of propped up as like a politicized, commercialized version. Christ of the Scriptures. Scripture is the difference. You will go through seasons in your life. Young people, listen, you will go through seasons in your life when preachers let you down, when churches let you down, when denominations let you down, when you might even feel like God in a sentimental way or by not answering your prayers on time lets you down. The word of God, I believe, will never let you down that way. The word of God is the only adequate filter for truth It is timeless. It is true. You can depend on it. The truth is many of us gave up on it way too early. We gave up on it because of something else someone else said to us in a classroom or on a campus or online one day. We haven't really given it a shot for ourselves. But the Bible is what makes the difference. This is why biblical literacy matters so, so much. If you're versed in scripture, you would see that the Bible encourages us not to just deconstruct or tear down the house, but the the other side of that coin is called sanctification. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit that involves discernment of truth through the lens of scripture, but it also leads us down a much healthier, much more edifying process Let me just break it down and we'll close. But sanctification would have you to ask, all right, what is true? What's really true? I know truth is out there. What is true? But deconstruction would ask, just like Pontius Pilate did in front of Jesus, what is truth even? What even is truth, really? Can we ever really know? So sanctification would ask, you know, what does the Bible see in me that needs to change? And and deconstruction would say, what do I see in the Bible that needs to change? (laughs) You see, deconstruction puts ourselves at the center of it. Sanctification puts God and his word at the center of our lives. And it helps us to see there is a great difference between the gospel of Christ and the religions of men. I've got two challenges, and then I'm finished. First, if you're someone who's standing in that space, you're occupying that zone between belief and unbelief, like that desperate father that day, and you're, you're not really sure what's true today. I want you to hear a word of mercy, and I want to encourage and challenge you to take a step closer to God through the scriptures.
And even if you fell out of love with the Bible long ago, for whatever reason, for whatever issue, whatever cause, give it a chance, an honest chance in the context of community, searching the scriptures and learning the word of God together. Second, if you're someone who's not really in that space, you're here because you're all in with Jesus, you love someone and know and care about someone right now who is what they would say deconstructing, walking away. I challenge you to make the call, to send the text, to invite that person to coffee or to lunch, not for the purpose of preaching at them, berating them, or belittling their doubts, but instead to listen and listen closely to their hearts so that you can, through that relationship, speak truth with grace into their lives. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for today. Lord, uh, humble us and help us to see that uh, your word is true. Even though we've uh, tried and failed to replace you and your word with other things, including ourselves and our own feelings and ideas, your word is steadfast. And I pray for walls to come down today. Pray for sanctification to take hold today in us, Lord, and thank you for your Holy Spirit that makes us new. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.